Revelation chapter 6, we continue our journey in this uh, book that promises a blessing to us if we study it. It makes Revelation unique just right there, that promised blessing. We'll be finishing chapter 6 tonight. I was thinking about all the books and movies that uh, depict catastrophic worldwide destruction caused by various kinds of disasters. There's a whole genre of that, disaster movies. People like them, evidently, because they keep coming out. So I don't know about these, but I did a little research, and here's some examples of that. 1974, there was one called Earthquake. An earthquake of unimaginable magnitude hits Los Angeles. 1997, one called Volcano. A volcano erupts in downtown Los Angeles. So a lot of these, for whatever reason, <laughs> L.A. Is the, is the whipping post. This one's different. 2009, there was one called Tidal Wave. People in South Korea only have 10 minutes to escape this natural disaster. Found many others uh, about earthquakes in San Francisco, New York, Chile, Norway, Japan. There are a lot of movies that depict catastrophic worldwide destruction by asteroids or meteors hitting the earth. Again, I'm, just, I'm not familiar with them, but this is what I found in my research. 1958, there was one called The Day the Sky Exploded. Scientists discover that a group of meteors are hurtling on a collision course with earth, and if they hit, the planet will be destroyed 1979, one called Meteor. The U.S. must join forces with the Soviet Union. This is all then fiction, obviously. Must join forces with the Soviet Union in order to destroy a gigantic asteroid heading straight for Earth. 1998, Deep Impact. A comet is discovered to be on a collision course with Earth. This was the most interesting one to me. This was back in 1984. Night of the Comet. Listen to the storyline. A comet wipes out most of life on Earth, leaving two valley girls (laughs) fighting against cannibal zombies. You know, where do people get these storylines, you know? There's something common, though, in all those disaster stories that play off of people's fears. That's what they're doing. But a common thread interestingly, is that somehow the human race always survives these. But though all those storylines are made up, obviously, there actually is coming a time of worldwide disasters in the future. And when these occur, occur, the human race will not be able to win, at least not those who reject the truth of Scripture who reject the gospel message about forgiveness of sin found only in Christ. This time in the future, we've already talked about it, is known as the tribulation, a future seven-year period when God will pour out his wrath on rebellious mankind. It is prophesied in the Old Testament, more than one place, but especially the book of Daniel. We mentioned that, as we saw last time. In Daniel, this future tribulation is called the 70th week in the Daniel prophecy. It's called that due to a measurement of time, a way of measuring time in which a prophetic week represents not seven days, but seven years. 
70th week of the prophecy is the seven-year period known as the tribulation that's in the future. And that seven-year period is broken down into two halves, one half consisting of three and a half years and the other half consisting of three and a half years. Each half contains certain judgments from God, all of which are devastating. But the second half is referred to even as the great tribulation because what will happen in this half is even more devastating than what happens in the first half. We also saw that this seven-year period is what leads up then right up to the second coming of Christ to earth. Well, we are, we are studying the book of Revelation here on Wednesday nights, and in Revelation, these judgments that will be released by God upon the earth are depicted by a scroll that has seven seals. More specifically, in Revelation chapter 6, we have these seals being undone, unfastened, if you will. There's been a a vision, chapters 4 and 5, John taken up to heaven, so to speak, in a vision. He saw God on the throne, but he also saw this scroll. And he saw Jesus, the risen and exalted Lamb, taking this scroll that represents all the judgments that are going to be poured out during the future tribulation time. And he opens it seal by seal. And as each seal is opened, a different judgment is poured out. So far, we've studied the first four sealed judgments, all of which will take place during that first half of the tribulation. And then we introduced the fifth seal last time, which is the bridge between the two halves of the tribulation. Let's give our time to the Lord, and then we'll look at our outline again. Father, we are encouraged that there's a blessing for reading and studying this book because it it gives us the end of the story and the record of your victory that's already been won. Lord, we're sobered by it, but we're also encouraged because we're reminded that you're a holy and just God, a God of wrath, but yet we're reminded that you're a God of mercy and grace that loves to forgive repentant sinners. So, Lord, as we study this blessed book, help us to be clear at what you want us to know. In Christ's name, in Christ's name, amen. So, again, the outline that we've been following just of the whole book that's laid out for us in a a verse of Scripture in the first uh, beginning of the book of John seeing a vision of what Christ looked like in that vision, who he is, a vision of what was going on there with the churches, uh, messages to the churches actually from Christ, and then the rest of the book looking at what's coming in the future. So I'm going to try to uh, advance this slide here a little bit. Here we go. Okay. So there's the whole outline of the book, the vision, what you have seen, chapter one, the churches, messages to the churches, what is now That's chapters 2 and 3, the future from chapter 4 onward, what will take place later. This book was written in 96 AD, so it's certainly later than that. We're drilling down on that third part, what will take place later. You saw chapters 4 and 5, this adoration of God on the throne there and of the Lamb, and then chapter 6 onward, the tribulation period, which is what we're looking at. So drilling down on that, the tribulation. We looked at 
the idea that there are these phases of judgments, and so we're in that phase one, looking at these seven seals, beginning with chapter six. So the first seal was this false peace that's going to come on the earth, but it's going to end because of the second seal, the second round of judgments, violent war on the earth, the third seal, catastrophic famine, the fourth seal we studied, widespread death. We introduced the fifth seal last time, sanctified longing, and tonight we'll go on to the sixth seal in a moment. So this fifth seal, sanctified longing, the fifth seal is different than the first four. The the first four each had a a horse and a rider that was symbolizing the various forces or judgments that will occur. There is a force associated with the fifth seal, but it's different. It's, It's the force of prayer. More specifically, the prayers of those individuals who will come to Christ during the first half of the tribulation who will be killed, though, all because of their love of the truth, the word of God, and their love for Christ, their loyalty to him. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, you'll see where the fifth seal begins there. And in that verse, they're called souls. They're in heaven, pleading with God for him to judge rebellious people who oppose him. So tonight, here is verse 9 again. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. We pick up now verse 10 to complete our study of the fifth seal before we go on to the sixth. Verse 10, and they cried, so here they are, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers. That's a phrase used periodically in the book of Revelation to talk about the lost sinners who are on earth, rebellious man. So as I said, the force depicted now is different than the first four. It's the prayers of the tribulation martyrs for God to carry out his will. Essentially, that's what they're praying, and God does work that way. He moves on his people to pray prayers that are ultimately for his will to be done, and that is true of our prayers today. Just so you'll know, God moves on our hearts to pray, even keeps shaping our prayers as time goes on so that we're praying the will of God. Well, in the future tribulation period, it will be God's will to pour out judgments on rebellious man. This prayer, then, of the future martyrs is kind of like those psalms in Scripture that we call imprecatory psalms. You might compare their prayer to an imprecatory psalm. There are certain psalms which which highlight the need for God's righteous judgment to be manifested in some way. But when it comes to these souls under the altar, in heaven, pleading with God, praying to God, crying out to him, a little bit of an explanation is needed. This future prayer of the martyrs are not prayers from a selfish desire, just a personal selfish desire for revenge. No, these prayers are are a protest, if you will, against all that is iniquity, all that is dishonoring to God. Therefore, the prayers of the persecuted for judgment move God then, just as he willed those prayers to do, move God to bring about end-time events. Listen to Luke chapter 18, verse 7. 
Luke 18, verse 7, Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? There's that same idea of this prayer that that God would do what is right for God to do, and in this case it's right for God to judge those who are rebellious against him. So they cry out for God's will to be done in that way. And that term cried out in verse 6 is a strong word. It it, it has emotion in it, it, and it has a, a sense of urgency to it. It's used many times in Scripture to to convey this idea of urgency. Matthew 9, verse 21, there was the blind uh, men who followed Jesus, and it says in Matthew 9, they were crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. So it's not just speaking something. There's passion involved. There's urgency. That's true about these prayers by the souls under the altar. The verb tense, just so you'll know, cry out, means that it was a a single definite appeal. They weren't whining over and over. It wasn't that. They just cried out in this one single urgent prayer with a loud voice, it says, making their desire known to the Lord that they wanted his will to be done. They know that's his will, and they entrust it to him. They address God there as Lord, holy, and true. That that is in keeping with their call for vengeance, for their call for justice. Interesting, though, the word Lord is not the normal New Testament word for Lord. That's the Greek term kurios, very common. It's not that one here. It's a stronger term, despotes. That's where we get our word despot. It means a master, a ruler. It's a word that's depicting power and authority. So they refer to God that way. You are the all-powerful God with all authority, the ruler of all things. We're crying out to you for your will to be done. And they even mention two of God's attributes as they address him. They say he's holy and true. God is holy. He must judge sin to be holy. Psalm 5, verse 4 and 5, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Verse 5, you hate all who do iniquity. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot even look on wickedness with favor. Why? Because he's holy. It means separate from. It's the apartness of God, that which is unholy. So he has to judge sin. That's who he is. And he's also true. They knew that. To be true means you're faithful to your word and you keep your promises. Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God's not like man that he should lie. He's not like the son of man that he should repent. In other words, change. He he doesn't change. 1 Samuel 15, 29, God will not lie or change his mind. There are those times in Scripture where from man's perspective, it looks like his will has changed or he has repented. Scripture will even say that, but that's a condescension to us so we can understand God. But in reality, he doesn't change his mind because he's a true God. So here he is, the holy God who's apart from evil, the true God who's faithful to his word. And together, those two attributes affirm that God cannot tolerate unrepentant iniquity forever. He must avenge. 
and that day is coming. 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation. By the way, back in Revelation 3, verse 7, the same two attributes are applied to the Lamb, to Jesus. He's the holy and true one. It's a way of affirming his deity, his full equality with the Father. But back to our text, note that the plea to God by these martyrs is in the form of a question. They cry out, but it's, it's a question. How long? Now, they're not trying to tell God what to do. That's not the point of it. They're not telling him, you know, when you're going to do it, God. They're not trying to manipulate him in some way. It's just a way of expressing this holy desire on their part to see iniquity judged rightly by the holy and true God. That question, how long, you'll find that at other places in Scripture. If you think about it, that question's been on the lips of many Christians throughout human history. Many of God's people, since the beginning of human history, those who are suffering, those who are mistreated, those who long for justice, wondering how how long. We know you're right and good and true and everything you do is right, but how long? The psalmist said that, Psalm 13, verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 35, verse 17. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages. So here they are, crying out in heaven, killed because of their faith, knowing it's by the earth dwellers, those who hate God and hate his ways. God, you're a holy and righteous God. You've said that you will avenge. We know you'll do it. How long is up to you, Lord? We make our cry. It's in your hands. I couldn't help but think of Genesis 4. Something else cried out for justice one time. Remember in Genesis 4? God said to Cain, who had killed his brother, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Same idea. That's the idea here in Revelation 6. A pleading for justice to be done. Just like God, in a sense, could hear Abel's blood crying out for justice. But in the scheme of Revelation and the tribulation and the future, where we are in the book, that time for God to completely avenge himself is is not finished yet. It's still a little ways off. So look at verse 11. You see God's immediate response to the martyr's appeal and their question. His immediate response is by way of of an act that's symbolic of something and also some words he says to them. Verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Now before commenting on this verse, I want you to keep in mind something. That we're seeing the seals open consecutively. And that means something. It speaks of a consecutive fulfillment. These are all happening according to God's plan that he's already determined for the future. So when this fifth seal is opened, in God's sovereign plan, it's it's not done yet. There's a period of time still remaining before the end, before Christ comes. All this is leading up to that, which fits the timing of this fifth seal. I said that it's It's the bridge between the two halves of the tribulation. It's after the first four seals, setting the stage for the second half of the tribulation. 
So it's shortly before the events of the sixth seal, which is in the second half. So let's look at the two elements that make up God's response. He, he symbolically gives a gift to them, in a sense. It's, it's what's called a white robe here. Likely given to them as they are killed and arrive in heaven. Now, it's a Greek term that actually does, in John's day, refer to a long, flowing robe that goes all the way down to the feet. These white robes, though, are symbolic here. Symbolic of eternal blessedness now to these souls, these individuals. The, the, the glory that these redeemed saints enjoy in heaven now. Not actual robes, though. We know that because what's depicted here in this vision is before they have their resurrected bodies. The resurrection of the bodies of the redeemed, when it comes to the tribulation saints, that occurs at Christ's return. That's chapter 20 later on. They don't have intermediate bodies. They have no bodies. These are the souls. It's a symbolic gift. It's, your, it's the glory of heaven. It's the blessedness of being in heaven now. And the rest that goes with that, eternal rest. And so he encourages them with this second sort of element here, along with that symbolic gift, the idea of a white robe representing the the blessedness of heaven and the rest of heaven, he says to them, so rest, just a little while longer. He's not rebuking them. As one writer said, impatience is actually a sin. Perfected people in heaven don't sin. He's not rebuking them. Rather, it's an encouragement. It's an encouragement to them that God will answer their prayer, their cry. He will fulfill his will in this. And therefore, because he will do that, they can continue to enjoy the heavenly rest symbolized in the white robe until God's time of wrath intensifies and is completed. As we will see a little later, if you look ahead to Revelation 10, verse 6, you actually see the statement, there will be delay no longer. So there's a span of time here between the verse 11 here and what we're going to see in chapter 10, or as God says it here, what's the span of time? Verse 11, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. God has sovereignly determined the exact number of those who will be killed during the tribulation because of their faith. He already knows that. Based on what we find in Revelation, it's a large number. It's a future slaughter of true believers that will be without precedent in human history. Thousands killed because of their belief in the word of God and because of their love for Christ. God knows who they are, even now. Sovereignly determined number. So he tells them, enjoy your rest now. I hear your cry. I'm going to avenge holiness. There's going to be justice. There are some more like you that are to be killed because of their faithfulness to me. That's the fifth seal, and that brings us to the sixth seal now. The seventh seal is not until the next chapter, so this is the last seal now of chapter six, just what I've called irrational fear. I think in my own notes I first called it debilitating fear, but it made more sense to call it irrational fear. We'll see why in a moment. 
Again, before specifically looking at this, there's something else I want to comment on. Just for a moment, this important expression in Scripture called the day of the Lord. So a little bit of a parenthesis here. The day of the Lord, very important expression in Scripture. It's an expression that's used in the Old Testament as well to describe periods when God intervenes specifically in human history for judgment. Whenever that happens, it's referred to as the day of the Lord. It's related to judgment. There are some additional labels that you see the Old Testament prophets using, used to talk about the same thing, the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's called the, the destruction by the Almighty, the time of God's fury and burning anger, a very great and awesome day. So on one hand, the phrase day of the Lord is sometimes used in the Old Testament to refer to judgments that have happened in history, imminent historical judgments. But there are other times in Scripture when the phrase day of the Lord is referring directly to God's future, final, uh, eschatological judgments at the end of human history. In other words, the tribulation period will be the arrival of the eschatological day of the Lord because judgment is being poured out especially the second half of it. And in Scripture, we find that the day of the Lord, eschatologically in the future, includes the second coming, the tribulation leading up to it, and the second coming because when Christ comes, he is still going to enact judgment on the earth, but do it directly. It is that aspect, by the way, of the day of the Lord that Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. Here's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Some have applied that to the rapture. That's not talking about the rapture there. It's the second coming. In other words, though unbelievers by that point are going to be under great torment and it's increasing, they still convince themselves that they can take care of themselves and they can carry on life as normal. And even though these judgments are going on, the actual moment of Christ's return will be a shock to them still. It'll come like a thief in the night. Yet there's one more aspect of the future day of the Lord, according to Scripture. It's the tribulation period, including the second coming that leads, tribulation leads up to that, still more judgment. The day of the Lord even includes the climax of judgments at the conclusion of the millennium, 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Completely, finally. That stage of the day of the Lord is not discussed until Revelation 20. All that's called the day of the Lord, so just keep that in mind. Judgment. Now the sixth seal represents an increasing intensity of God's judgment in the day of the Lord, with time advancing toward the second coming. And just like for the other seals, there's a force associated with this seal. It's not false peace, it's not war, it's not famine, it's not death, it's not even prayers. This time, the force that's captured in this seal is fear. Fear is going to begin to captivate the unbelieving world during this future time. We understand fear is a powerful emotion. Some would say it's the most powerful of human emotions. It it controls a person. It controls their mind. It controls their will. 
fear motivates one way or the other. It can motivate somebody to take steps that are necessary. It can motivate or control somebody to the point where they're living in panic. People fear all kinds of things. There are people who live in fear of disease. That's especially true the last couple of years, right? Captivated by that fear. For others, it's fear of the loss of someone they love or fear of their own death or loss of all that they own, job, possessions, material things. People fear particular things. They fear relationships or they, the list goes on and on really. If it gets very pointed and very specific, we call them phobias. People fear all kinds of things, spiders, flying, heights. That one's okay, heights. That needs to be feared. Fear of enclosed places, you know, those kind of things, phobias. Point is, long list, people fear all kinds of things. Fear is captivating, it's controlling. A lot of things to fear. People fear all kinds of things except the thing that they should fear the most. According to Scripture, that's God. Luke 12, verse 5, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We substitute all kinds of other things to fear. People don't fear God as they should, if they even believe he exists at all. There's coming a day, however, when all that is going to change. God is going to begin to judge the world, and it's going to increase in the day of the Lord. It's going to increase, especially now as you move into the sixth seal judgment. And in this seal, you don't have humans involved, really, in the enacting of the judgment. There's, there's no rider and a horse. There's no the souls under the altar it's God now acting alone. And as I noted, this is now looking at the events. We've moved past the bridge of the halfway point, the midpoint of the tribulation. We're, we're now looking at the events in the second half of the tribulation. In the second half, because the intensity increases, it's called not just the tribulation, but the great tribulation. Find that in Matthew 24, verse 21. So by this point, other things that we'll study in the book of Revelation, by this point, certain things have already happened now. The final Antichrist has desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by this point, an event called the Abomination of Desolation. The world is worshiping him. There's a massive persecution of both Christians and Jews. What's amazing is how much people on the earth will ignore all this. That's what's hard to understand. How they'll seek, like I said, even in the midst of turmoil and chaos to somehow convince themselves to carry on life as usual. Here's what Jesus said about that, Matthew 24, 37 through 39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. The tribulations leading up to that. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Hard for us to process that. How blind and stubborn, rebellious man can be. In other words, the warnings that the traumatic events represented in the 
first five seals, the warnings that this is the beginning of God's judgment. Those who come to Christ are preaching the truth and they're being killed. They're ignoring their warnings. But that's going to change once the sixth seal judgment begins. The events of the sixth seal are going to be so devastating, so terrifying, that they're finally going to at least do this, attribute it to God. Now, the Lord described the events associated with the sixth seal. We'll get to the sixth seal in a moment, but it's Matthew 24, 29. Here's what Christ said, Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, what tribulation has already taken place, The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. We're going to see that. Luke 21, verse 11, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Luke further wrote this, Luke 21, verses 25 to 26, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. All this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it. Verse 10. Before them the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Verse 31 of Joel 2. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, meaning the second coming. Zephaniah 1.15. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. If you look at Ezekiel, he he adds all these uh, violent weather kind of things that are going to accompany all this. So in summary, the sixth seal is going to be shattering enough to leave human beings with the understanding that the ultimate end is arriving, even though the events will not be comprehensive enough to amount to total destruction. That's still not going to happen under the sixth seal. Not a total destruction. So let's see how all this came out in John's vision now. After opening the sixth seal, we're at verse 12 now, John's attention is captured by all these sights that are breathtaking, and first is this great earthquake that met his eyes. We'll just call it seismic disturbances. Okay? There's kind of three categories of disturbances here in the sixth seal. This is the first one. Seismic disturbances, verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. Now, obviously, we've had a lot of earthquakes in history. Uh, I've been through some. But this one is going to be far more powerful, far more devastating than any earthquake that will ever have occurred. The term used here in the Greek for great earthquake is seismos megas. You know, mega, big. Seismos, where we get our word seismic. And the word seismos literally means a shaking. You could translate it convulsions. been times in history where God made his presence known that way, right? Look at Exodus 19 when he gave the law. 
ground shook. God's here. You find it in Isaiah and Ezekiel when God was pouring out certain judgments, the earthquakes would shake things. Even at the crucifixion, right? Matthew 27. God's presence was made known through an earthquake. When Paul and Silas were released from prison, jail and Philippi, Acts 16, earthquake. But like I said, this future earthquake will be nothing like the world has ever seen. It's going to be global, and some, many are going to think the end has come, but it's not the end yet. Seventh seal is worse. Seismic disturbances, there's another category of disturbances. Cosmic disturbances, cosmic disturbances. Verse 12 continues, And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. Sackcloth was cloth, a very rough cloth made from the hair of black goats, I'm told. They would wear it uh, when they were mourning, like at a, someone had died. A mourning cloth. So this is saying that after this earthquake devastates the earth, the sun is going to look like that. It's going to turn as if it's black, like this, like this black robe that they wear when, at funerals. Now, it's not hard to understand that an earthquake of this magnitude, there's going to be things that accompany that, right? What accompanies earthquakes? Things like volcanic eruptions, tsunamis. Volcanic eruptions can, re, can release all kinds of quantities and, of dust and steam and gases into the atmosphere, and so it will be dark, and darkness is associated in Scripture with judgment many times. Dark. Notice it says the sun became black as sackcloth. It's little words like that that key you in to where there's symbolism and, and the idea that they're trying to find something that it would compare to. So here, it doesn't mean literally that the sun turns into sackcloth. No, it's like that, though, as. Verse 12 continues, and the whole moon became like blood. It doesn't turn into blood. Like blood, it's a simile. Those same clouds of ash and smoke can eclipse the moon. Gases coloring it, this blood red. So no doubt, I mean, this is going to affect everything on earth. I mean, all aspects of life, these cosmic disturbances. And you throw in the total eclipse of the sun and the moon, and it's going to be more reason for people to panic. And there'll be more cosmic disturbances. Verse 13, and the stars... Of the sky fell to earth. The little word as is coming after that. We'll comment on that in a moment. The term stars is not a word that refers only to what we call stars. It's a word that refers to asteroids, comets, meteors, all that. So in this context, we know it doesn't refer to actual stars. First of all, they're too large and far too distant to fall to the earth. Plus, in chapter 8 we're going to see that the stars are still in place under the fourth trumpet judgment. So it's that other meaning. It's asteroids and meteor showers and comets that just bombard the earth and cause unprecedented destruction. Now, all of this, this phenomenon, is so large-scale that the point is it's what it appears to look like from man's perspective. It's as if the fall, the skies, the stars are falling. That's what it looks like. 
It's looking like the blood has turned, that the moon has turned to blood. In fact, verse 13 goes on to compare it something. Like this, it's, it's, it's as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. I mean, it's like you shake the fig tree and the figs are just falling off everywhere. That's what it looked like to John. What a scene. If that's not enough, there's another cosmic disturbance here listed. And once again, keep in mind, this is just what it's going to look like as man sees it. Verse 14 says, the sky was split apart like, there's that simile language again. It's like a scroll when it's rolled up. It's going to look like heaven is so convulsed, so shooken, that it's going to appear to sort of split and and roll back in two opposite directions to look like a scroll. Divided portions, sort of like curled up like paper. No wonder people are going to panic. By the way, there's an interesting parallel in the book of Isaiah, verse 34, chapter 34, verse 4. Listen to this, Isaiah 34, verse 4. And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away, as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. You know. All this is from the human perspective, perspective perception, cosmic disturbances, looking like to them that the universe is coming apart at the seams. And it's still not the ultimate passage of the heavens. That doesn't come until Revelation 20. So seismic disturbances, cosmic disturbances, we'll call this last category terrestrial disturbances. Now the account of the sixth seal returns to earth now. I'm looking at it, not the heavens. Verse 14, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The entire earth's crust has become unstable in all of this, with segments of it shifting, sliding. As a result of the earthquake and the volcanic activity, islands disappearing, some mountains disappearing. So again, you look back at verse 12, 13, 14, you find those words, like, as. Guess what's missing here? No like or as. This one's literal. The geophysical changes of the earth's surface will actually occur. In fact, they're going to occur again, even on a larger scale, coming up in Revelation 16. Not all the mountains will disappear. The complete removal of every mountain will not leave any hiding places that we're going to see in verse 16 in a moment. But many of them, they're going to appear to to disappear, to crumble, to move, slide, convulsing the the earth, the, the atmosphere, the heavens. This sixth seal, what happens here, we're talking about the most terrifying events ever to affect the earth. Those movies with CGI are nothing. Humans always find a way to survive, not here. What's going to happen is people are going to be filled with debilitating, even irrational fear. All people. Now, he mentions two groupings of people here, just to confirm that fear is going to affect everybody. 
all unbelievers, regardless of the class of society that they're in. So the first grouping, there's a, there's a couple of groupings here. The first one in verse 15, we can call these the elite. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong. These labels are referring to the elite of the earth. The kings of the earth really uh, literally refers to the, the heads of state of all the, the nations. The great men, those are, it's a label referring to high-ranking civil officials. The commanders is the word used for a Roman officer that would command a thousand men, so it's a military leader. The rich, those are the ones who control all the commerce and the business and all the nations around the earth. The strong is just referring to influential people. They exercise great influence on significant numbers of people various ways. All those go together to comprise what we'll just call the elite elements of human society with all their power, all their influence, all their money, all their positions. It doesn't exempt them from all this, all God's judgments and from fear. There's a second grouping, verse 15, we'll just say it's it's the common folk, the common. The elite, the common. Verse 15, and every slave and free man, the word every grammatically goes with both those terms. It, it controls both of them, slave and freeman. Together, you take them together, they make up then the lower classes of society, the common classes of society. The point is, even the common people will not escape this as well. They'll be just as terrified. So it doesn't matter whether you're part of the elite, they are part of the elite, or the common. All categories of people are going to be equal on that day, responding the same way. Verse 15, it says, They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. The term for rocks means rocky masses, cliffs. A rocky chain of mountains, it can mean all that. They should have responded a different way, with repentance. But instead, what's going to be seen is irrational, mindless panic. Why am I calling it irrational? Well, look at where they're hiding. What sense is that? I mean, here they are, they're acknowledging some truth. They're acknowledging that there are some disasters going on that are related to God's judgment. But still, they refuse to repent. And they try to hide out in the very places that are convulsing and being shaken and crumbling and disappearing. The whole natural world is collapsing. They're so in such a state of mind and panic that they can't even think rightly. It's the only place they can think of to go, and it makes no sense. Now, of course, we know something about God. It doesn't matter where they go. God's omnipresent. It's not possible to hide from him. It's not possible to evade his judgment. But this is what they try to do. They think they can. And here's something else interesting. One writer called it, they have a prayer meeting. So here they are, hiding out in all the rocks and mountains and cliffs, even though many of those are crumbling all around them. And so they do cry out. Now, the souls under the altar, they cried out. We understand that's to God, but these aren't crying out to God. Look at verse 16. What are they crying out to? The mountains, the rocks. One writer said they're crying out to Mother Nature. 
Verse 16 says, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Him who sits on the throne, that refers to God. And once again, the verbs here are in a form that carries a note of urgency. They're with urgency saying, fall on us, hide us. They're so terrified they would rather die than face the wrath of a holy God. They'd rather die than repent. Totally irrational. That's irrational too. It's irrational to go hide in the rocks, and it's irrational to say, kill us so that we don't have to face God. Why is that irrational? (laughs) Because when they die, they're going to face God. They're not going to escape the judgment even if they do die. But rather, Revelation 20 says they'll be cast into the lake of fire eventually. Interestingly, it's not just him who sits on the throne. They recognize something. All of this judgment is being meted out through someone else, the Lamb, Jesus. He's the agent of judgment. And these panic-stricken people are going to recognize that Jesus has a role in inflicting all this misery. Shouldn't surprise us that Jesus expresses wrath. We saw that a couple of times when he was on earth and cleansed the temple. And it shouldn't surprise us either that he's not just a lamb, right? Chapter 5, verse 5 says he's also a lion. He's going to judge like that, like a lion. And the panic-stricken people are going to recognize him that way, the lion. So that's what sinners dread most, not death per se, but standing before a holy and righteous God. They're going to, at this point, begin to clearly apprehend that they are accountable for provoking this wrath, and they still won't repent. Here's what else they say, verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. That phrase, great day of wrath, is a synonym for what that parenthesis was about a moment ago, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, judgment, has come. And the scene closes with this rhetorical question, who is able to stand? The evidence seems to suggest it's not even here just meaning stand before God, it, it even includes being, being able to live. Who can live? Who can stand? Who can remain on earth alive? And the obvious answer either way is no one. Paul confirms that in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, they will not escape. So just reviewing all that, first four seals, first half of the tribulation of the day of the Lord, Middle point, some things are going to happen there, the abomination of desolation. The fifth seal is the bridge there in the middle. Leads us into the second half of the tribulation. Intensity of judgments is what this is characterized as. We'll see it even more in the seventh seal, which is subdivided between seven trumpets and seven bowls of judgment. The words as and like kind of help you understand that John is trying to describe what he sees with what he understands. And when those words aren't there, there's literal stuff going on as well. And it'll be too late for them. Well, as already stated, this 
sixth seal is not the end, not the actual end. It's the anticipation of what comes under the seventh seal leading up then to the coming of Christ. And then following Christ's personal intervention, enacting of judgment directly, there's going to come an extended time of blessing and prosperity for those who remain to populate the earth. We'll see that in Revelation 20. And even that's within this thing called the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord includes the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, the tribulation period, the time of Christ's personal return, and even his reign over the earth and subsequent judgment after that. It's actually encouraging to know that in the midst of all this, God has his people that he's going to save in the midst of all this. He knows who they are. It's a, it's a number. Even in the midst of the terrors of divine judgment, both Jews and Gentiles, I should emphasize it, Gentiles and Jews. In fact, Romans tells us a great number of Jews. Such a great number that Paul could literally call it all Israel at that time. But for the rest, outside that number, the words from Hebrews 10, 10 applies. Hebrews 10. 26, 27. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We're in the age of grace. We're in the church age. We're in the age where people pray like Stephen did when he was being killed. Not the martyrs under the altar in the future, but Stephen, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. Christ prayed that. Grace is extended. We preach the gospel and we call people to come to him before it's too late. We don't spend our time trying to figure out the timing of this. And that's where people go awry, I think. God has, chose, has not chosen to disclose the, the precise time of the final day of the Lord. And yet there's something that continues unabated today that's been around for a long time, and that is the practice of date setting. Don't do that. Don't, don't get caught up in the mysterious speculation about the details of the timing. Get caught up in this. I need to grow in grace. That's profitable. Date setting is not. Trying to interpret MSN or Fox News or CNN or anybody else, trying to interpret all that is not profitable. Growing in grace is profitable. Keeping short accounts of your sin, taking sin seriously and and confessing and repenting and seeking to put off what's wrong and what's right, that's profitable. Peter tells you what's, what's the right perspective. Here's what's profitable. 2 Peter 3.14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, here's what you need to be diligent in. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. It's a way of saying, come to Christ now. Come to faith in Christ. Serve him as your Savior and Lord and seek to grow in grace, and seek to tell others what the answer is for the forgiveness of their sin. Seek to be spotless and blameless 
sanctified in this life. Let's pray. Father, so much technical data that we just burn through so rapidly in, in ways. And we can get bogged down and forget the big picture that, first of all, this is all about Christ. It's all about the risen Lamb. It's all about the one who gave his life for our, our sins, paid our sin debt, was buried, was raised from the dead, glorified, ascended to heaven, who is at the right hand of majesty on high, ruling over all things, and who will come again. It's all about him, our perfect Savior, the one who will right every wrong someday. And our hearts grieve over what rebellious man who's alive at that time is going to experience. And how all rebellious men of that time and those in the past and who die now will be cast in the lake of fire someday. Satan and his angels. So Lord, I pray that we would understand what's important now. It's knowing Christ. Seeking the forgiveness of our sin that's found only in him. And serving and living for him. Lord, we leave all the speculation alone. We, we know your timing is perfect in your sovereignty. So we trust that in Christ's name. Amen.